Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're revisiting 2007's Australian Open, where Roger collected his 10th Grand Slam title. We're at the halfway mark, Brian. We are in double digits, and it's fitting we're in double digits, Vic, because pound for pound, this, I think, might be one of the more impressive Federer titles. Not so much that he had to travel the hardest road to the championship, but some of the performances that he put on, when you talk about him as maybe the greatest player of all time, this tournament and some of the matches he played provide pretty strong evidence. We talked last night a little bit before uh, jumping on the pod today. And when you mentioned the Roddick match, which we're going to talk about as we get through this, that was, of course, the semifinal. One metric that I checked out to try to test your hypothesis about potentially it being his greatest game ever was the dominance ratio. I'll save that for then, but I did take some screenshots and we can go through that together. But our story, I think, begins at the end of 2006, arguably his greatest season. Uh, or the greatest season of men's tennis. I do have a question about Rod Laver, though, because Rod Laver has done something uh, in researching this that no player has done to this point still. That's not Federer and not Nadal, not Djokovic. Do you know what I'm speaking of? The double Grand Slam, the two Grand Slams? The calendar Grand Slam. Yeah. He did it not once, but he did it twice. Right. Well, the first time he did it, was not in the open era. Is that correct? Let me yes. just double check the year. Yeah. So, so you, anything that comes before 1968, um, you look at it slightly differently just because it, it wasn't all top to bottom professional tennis like it is today. So that does count that, that changes things a bit, but yeah, the calendar year grand slam is the elusive accomplishment. We've seen it in the women's game, 1988, Steffi Graf did actually the golden slam because she won the Olympic gold medal as well. Serena just missed at the U.S. Open in 2015, she was beaten, shocking upset in the semifinals by uh, by Roberta Vinci. Um, I think if it were not for everything that's happened in 2020 with the pandemic, I think this year you had maybe the best opportunity to see it in the men's game. I think Djokovic, the kind of tennis he was playing, and you know you can't predict health and all that. I think Djokovic was well in line to give that a crack. Uh, we'd know right now because as we sit here, it would be heading into finals weekend of the French Open, and that's where you'd say he's going to have the toughest time. So yeah, that is just a next-level accomplishment. It's something Federer has never done. It's something Nadal's never done. Just the career Grand Slam is incredible. To do it in one year, that's next-level stuff, and that's why Rod Laver is Rod Laver. So the end of 2006, the nexus between that and this Australian Open, um, a thought I had was the emergence of Fernando Gonzalez. Uh, coming into the Australian Open, Roger beats him in the final in Madrid, and then again at Basel. The first time, to my surprise, that Roger ever won that tournament, maybe it was because he didn't play in it or because of something else that I might have missed. He wasn't playing in it every single year, but yeah, it was a huge deal when he won this tournament. I remember you telling me that. 
Yeah, and we were talking last week, and that was my prediction for when he eventually calls it a career. Yes. Where will he say goodbye? And I, I predicted Basel. There was a great interview uh, cross-plugging my different uh, roles here. I do some work for the ATP, and we have a great podcast, ATP Tennis Radio podcast. And a colleague of mine, Chris Bowers, did a tremendous interview, I think at Basel last year, with Roger's mom, Lynette. Um, and it would have aired around the time of, of the Basel tournament last year. So if you want to go back and listen to it in October, November, whenever it was last year, highly recommend it uh, just to hear her perspective of Roger growing up. And she spoke a lot in that interview about how important it was and what it meant for him and really the entire family to win Basel. And it, it's crazy how we're talking about maybe the best season in the history of men's tennis, 92 and five, three majors, rewrote the record books almost. And, Maybe the the most special win for him on a personal level was winning his hometown tournament at the end of the year. And when you look at the, you know, the the money and the points that were available, that's a little bit down the list in terms of everything else he won in that 2006 season. Brian, thoughts on Gonzo at the top of the pod? Um, what made 2006, 2007 sort of his coming out parade, if you will? Um, well, we've talked about him in the past, obviously, and just how powerful he was with his forehand. Um, how it was a bit of a changing of the guard in terms of Chilean tennis. You know, we had seen, we talked about Marcelo Rios last week in terms of the best players uh, to never win a major. He's always on that list. So Marcelo Rios, let's say, paved the way for the Chileans and Fernando Gonzalez was was right behind him. It, it was just his time. I mean, somebody like that, he's at that point, let's see, late 2006, early 2007, I think he's 26. And that's about the point, we're at that point when, that's when you become a better tennis player now at the men's side. You know, it used to be the days of the Michael Changs and Boris Becker. They're the extreme examples, winning majors as teenagers, but guys in their, in their younger 20s. I mean, Federer was about to be 22 when he won for the first time. But as that decade went on and the game got more physical, and we see this trend continued now, um, it takes a little more time to mature. We're seeing it now with Dominic Team on the men's side. We haven't seen the, the Sitsipas breakthrough yet. And you wonder, okay, is that because he's not, quite as physically tough to go over five sets physically mature that's probably a better word than tough and I think this is just his time he certainly has the weaponry he's now seen everybody everybody at this point essentially is Federer at the top of the game and you get that maturity and you get the match experience it's going to come good for you at some point and I think this is just the time when it came good for Fernando Gonzalez at the Masters Cup Roger defeats the likes of Roddick Nalbandian Nadal and Blake to win that tournament. And he finished 2006, 92 and five, which is a statistic we've mentioned before. Four of those losses, of course, came from Nadal, for whatever that's worth. Uh, His 2005 season record for good measure was 81 and four. So he's building himself up a little bit of like a Jordan type dynasty uh, in terms of regular season records here, if you will. To jump in Vic real quick, one thing that, that I think is worth noting since we are, you know, putting a bow on 2006, those five losses in 2006, the first four were to Nadal. The fifth was to Andy Murray mm-hmm. in the second round in Cincinnati. That's mid-August, and that was it for the year. So as we close out 2006, he went from Cincinnati to win the U.S. Open, win Tokyo, Madrid, Basel, and then the Masters Cup. So he was riding this 30-plus match winning streak into the 2007 Australian Open. And what you have told me is the hardest part of the year, the end of the year. People are, you know, it's just the, in the U.S. Open being the hardest Grand Slam to win for that reason. It's just so many variables at play. His total prize money, Brian, for the year 
was a little over $8.3 million, which is a lot of money, okay? But it doesn't quite seem like all that much in sports dollars, at least compared to other sports leagues. Speaking of money, Roger was just listed at number one for athlete earnings for 2020. First tennis player ever. How did that happen? Uh, thanks to the good folks at Uniqlo. Um, that's apparently, there's been some, it's never officially been nailed down on the record that the contract he apparently signed with them is as worth is worth as much as it's reported to be. Like nobody's ever come out and said that, yes, we are paying Roger this amount of money, but essentially it's, he signed a three-year contract worth $300 million. So that's do the math. You don't need to be a math major. That's $30 million a year from Uniqlo. And the thinking was, Okay, we're Uniqlo, we're a Japanese company. They've got Kane Ishikori, of course, on board. But here come the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Of course, we know what happened there. Hopefully, they're able to go off in 2021. But the thinking is with Uniqlo, you don't think of them as a, a sportswear company first. The thinking is, or at least from, from their part, was, okay, Federer's in the backstage of his career, but if we still have him under this contract, he's going to be a celebrity for the Ambassador. long run. So he'll be wearing our sweaters, our jeans, our pants, like everything else they produce. So it's a smart bit of marketing on their part. Um, and it's certainly a smart bit of financial sense on Federer's part to sign that deal. So yeah, he's taking in $30 million a year from Uniqlo. That's a huge one. Um, and you can just start the list from right there because you get a $30 million head start on everybody. I mean, Lacoste is not paying Novak Djokovic $30 million a year. Not uh, yet Nike's though, right? not paying. Won't this change that? Uh, I think it, no. And especially now in this, in this uh, pandemic and post pandemic world and economy we're in, where I think you'll probably see a lot of budgets tighten, at least in the short term. Um, so I think the appetite of a company to, to write that kind of check is not going to be as robust as it was three, four years ago when Roger signed this deal. That's my hunch. Um, so the Uniqlo deal. And then we talked, you know, what's the difference about number one versus number two. And it's, yeah. you know, okay, Roger's not number one anymore, but it's the Federer aura, that mystique. And you look at them with these real like blue chip companies and brands. And that's something that I, I think it, it speaks to tennis on a broader scale. You see it in golf as well. I mean, these are sports. When you watch the events on TV, you see the commercials. It's a, a certain kind of high income person that they're marketing towards. You see the Mercedes commercials, the Lexus commercials, financial services. It's it's not just Bud Light or a light beer. It's higher end things. Sure. And you would think those pay a little bit better too. So all of that together, it's worked into a pretty uh, delicious pie for Roger. Any insight about what happened with Nike? Why wasn't Nike ride or die with Roger Federer? I think it was just, just too much money. So they shopped him or basically he shopped them? Well- Think about it, what like we just talked about, where Nike comes at it with the with the viewpoint maybe of, and again, I'm not in the room here, but Nike comes at it with the viewpoint of you're on the you're in the twilight of your career. So we're gonna pay you like somebody's in the twilight of your career. You know, Federer's not Jordan with his own line of shoes. I mean, he had a, a lot at Nike, but at that point it's but then Federer's probably thinking, but I've made I've I'm I'm a global icon now. Like, why don't you pay me like that? Because this can go further. And he found that deal with Uniqlo. I mean, I'm sure if if Uniqlo wasn't out there, maybe, maybe he goes back to Nike. You know, it was, we saw Agassi at the end of his career wearing Adidas. I don't know if yeah. uh, if that would have uh, happened. But I think a lot of it just had to do with 
Uniqlo was willing to pay. And mm. Roger said, sure, why not? It's money. He still wears the Nike shoes, though. Yes, he does. He, I've noticed that as well. Like he didn't go, he didn't go cold turkey on Nike. If there was ever an other Jordan to sustain their own brand, like the brand you just mentioned, like Jumpman Twenty Three, could Roger be that guy? Could he have his own brand? Could the platform of tennis enable him to do that, or is basketball and Michael Jordan are they completely supreme with regard to that? Uh, tennis is close. I, I think you're going to have a problem like in the U.S. You know, getting as much penetration in the U.S. market and as, that's the as most they would get market. I think. Well, now you, you could argue Asia. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if you're going to get it quite as broadly and quite as easily as you would from a, a Jordan or even a LeBron now, who's basically his own Nike brand as well. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't have his own. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think LeBron is Nike. I don't think LeBron is. There's a LeBron umbrella. Yeah, I think that, like, I don't think you'll see that again. That I don't was think a Nike one-time wants, thing, huh? Yeah, because look where that started. It's 30, 35 years ago. Nike's a much more fledgling company yeah. where they're, Good point. but now it's like they're not looking to give away that much, you know, equity. I mean, I think the Jordan silo at Nike is like close to a billion dollars. And Over. I'm sure Nike doesn't love having to carve off a big part of that to somebody else. So if you can keep everybody more or less under the tent, and again, I'm, this is very amateur speculation. I would think they prefer to do that instead of just letting these people build whatever they want, essentially under the Nike umbrella. To quote our friend, uh, Tony Soprano, everybody wants in on a going thing. Yes, exactly. I will say one other thing though, about the clothing and you're in terms of an own brand, Andy Murray, um, we, he's been intermittent on and off the court the last couple of years because of injury. But when we've seen him, he's wearing this brand, it's called Castor. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. I don't, it, it's European. I don't know if it's based in the UK or somewhere else in Europe, but apparently he's an investor in it and now he's wearing their stuff as well. So that, and that, that's obviously at a smaller scale. This is like essentially a start, it's more fledgling company, right, almost right. like a startup. Uh, you could see it maybe in something like that and something that really takes off. Um, but I don't see like an established company doing what Nike did for Michael Jordan 30, 35 years ago. No, you artfully said it best. It didn't even occur to me until you just started talking about it. Nike was fledgling. And uh, as we've learned, I heard David Falk talk on, uh, on an interview somewhere post-documentary that they used to call Nike, inner circles used to call it Mikey. That's how important <laughs> Michael Jordan was. It was, you know, and then if you've, I don't know if you've read Shoe Dog, but Nike was fledgling up until the last minute. I mean, they couldn't even figure out the name uh, of the company until they had to sign their final document. So that's absolutely accurate. There's no incentive for Nike to do that now because they're a completely different stratosphere. And that makes sense. And I actually think that the athletes now, what they're doing as we're, we've kind of seen, at least in certain, in certain leagues, they're becoming more business minded and they're capitalizing these startups and they're taking a big chunk of equity. And maybe they can, maybe Andy Murray's thinking maybe this, if this could even be 25% of what Nike is, I have myself a healthy little payout here, you know? Yeah, that's, it's the that's business the side of things. We just, as we sit here and talk about global sports, we, uh, we just watched the Lance Armstrong documentary that, that ESPN did. Did you see that? No. So, and it's fitting too, because it's going around around the same time as, you know, peak Federer, but he's had to pay, he's lost all of his endorsements or most of them. And he had to pay a lot of money in settlements and you watch the documentary and you, and you think like, well, he's, he still looks like he's living a pretty good life. Like he sold his, his huge house, but 
he's living a good life. And you might think like, how? Apparently, they don't say this in the documentary, but I, I had read this. Apparently, he was a very early investor in Uber, like just a financial advisor who's dealing with his money, said, hey, I have this company. Do you want to put some money into it? Sure. And that has kept him uh, in pretty good shape over the last couple of years. It's amazing how those things work. It is fascinating. Well, like they say in venture capital, right? Like you make 100 bets and uh, 97 of them are complete whiffs, but the three that make it are the ones that carry you home. Exactly. Some notables in the Australian Open tournament before we get to the meat and potatoes of Roger and Fernando Gonzalez. Uh, Baghdadis uh, lost to Monfils in the second round. Um, was that just a case of finals malaise for Baghdadis, or was this the ascendancy of Monfils as the player that we know him today? Uh, it's the ascendancy of Monfils, also the frustration of Monfils in terms of like <laughs> this is a full example of what he's capable of. He's obviously never been able to get it all the way through, like at a major, um, but it's the talent, athleticism, you name it, that he has that's capable of overpowering pretty much anybody on tour. And we saw that in that second round, sixth love, uh, fourth set against Baghdadis. Roddick, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, beat uh, Joe Willie Sanga in the first round. I think Sanga is someone we're going to talk about more in a few episodes, but I could have sworn he had the makings of a champion early. Did I miss something on him? Um, well, there's that, that whole French generation. Um, you could say that about Monfils, Sanga, and then Richard Gasquet, who actually played Monfils and beat him in the third round. Um, Sanga, don't forget, gets to the, the final here. A year later, it's his first final, Djokovic's second, Djokovic's first major title. It becomes, you're thinking, oh, is this the next generation? We've never seen Sanga get back to that point. So did you miss something? No, it's just, it's a hard sport. Um, you know, what's that line between somebody who's, who's very good, a, a top 10 player like Joe Sanga and somebody who's an all-time great, like, like Novak Djokovic. I mean, if you're Sanga, you've had a great career, but if you're Djokovic, you've had this, this all-time career. And at that sharp end of the game, that's where those, those little differences just get so magnified. Took him five sets, but Safin, our old friend Murat Safin, beat Benjamin Becker in the first round. Uh, I bring him up because, of course, he sent Agassi into retirement from an episode ago. Now, Bandian out in the fourth round to Haas that I only mentioned because it weakens my position for him to be <laughs> an all-time great in this game. Uh, and then there's Chilich. Uh, he was in this tournament as a qualifier and lost in the first round. And I point him out here because he's going to become a, I think he meets Roger in two different finals coming up ahead. Am I right? I thought just one, just the Wimbledon final. He wins the U.S. Open, but doesn't. Uh, he beat Kane Ishikori in that final. Gotcha. He beats Roger in a, in a brutal semifinal, but he no doubt is part of Roger's storyline. So I wanted to put him on the map here today. This is his major, uh, his main draw debut. Marin yes, Chilich. thank you. And then Wawrinka, who we've briefly touched on earlier about his being a late bloomer and all that, he lost two 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 to Nadal in the third round. Finally. As far as notables, Murray and Nadal met in the fourth round, and Nadal won in five sets. Why did Nadal have a relatively tougher time at the Australian Open than he did with other tournaments? What is unique about Australian about the Australian Open that made it a little bit of an uphill battle for Rafa Nadal? 
Well, when you look at the results, it, it would still be an uphill battle because he is only, um, it's the only tournament that he's won once. It's yeah. the only thing keeping him from the, the double career grand slam. Um, it, it's a good question. You know, I would say in the, at this part in his career, I think he's still coming into his own on hard courts. You know, we haven't seen him with those, those big, big breakthroughs at the majors in terms of hard court events. Um, I think a lot of it might have to do, I know later on, uh, as he was really hit hard by injuries, since this tournament comes so early in the year, you know, you, you can run out of time to get recovered from the year prior and then get ready for this tournament. Like that, it can sneak up on, up on you. And you, you wonder if Nadal had ever gotten to that point where he was, he was fully fit, going, or fully ready to go, uh, going into the Australian Open. That could have been something. Um, I've, I've often wondered the same thing. Just why hasn't, and he's had the more success lately. He's not won, but he's been to some finals, lost that epic five setter a couple of years ago to Roger, which we'll certainly get into in a couple of weeks. Um, got absolutely, I mean, look at this though. Nadal played in, you could call it one of the three greatest men's matches of all time. The 2012 final against Djokovic. It was one of the longest matches ever. They couldn't stand up afterwards. That's Nadal. Okay. I don't, you don't call it a bad luck loss, but. Certainly could have won that match. Uh, loses a five-setter to Federer in the final. And then two years ago, got absolutely like drilled by Djokovic in the final, like shockingly so. Um, so yeah, it just hasn't come through for him. And it is a, I wouldn't say a mystery, but it is a bit of a something you take a second look at. Things that make you go, hmm. Yes. Roger's path to the final, Brian. First round, Bjorn Fow, ranked 82. Roger won 5-0-4. One in three lifetime against Federer. As a professional tennis player, getting one win against Roger Federer, if nothing else, is an accomplishment unto itself. 2006 was his best statistical year. He shares something in common with Roger there. Best statistical year. Different sides of the spectrum, I guess. And he had a big win against Agassi in Dubai. And I read that Agassi marveled at his quickness. He got Agassi to say something positive about him too, which is another thing that few professional tennis players have been able to walk away saying. He made it to the quarterfinals at Roland Garros. But other than that, don't have a whole lot more to say about Bjorn Fau. Yeah, I think the speed is, is what uh, you remember the most about him. But yeah, and that, that quarterfinal the French Open was also in doubles too. So even the success he had, uh, the most success he had in a major was on the double side. Then I misread. That was a doubles quarterfinal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he never got through. I mean, he never got past the second round uh, in singles. Jonas Bjorkman, second a round. A great doubles player. Another great doubles player. I think one of the best, one of the all-time, right? Yeah, he won the uh, career grand slam in, in doubles. Um, just one of those one of those rock-solid, steady guys. But, you know, going up against Pete Federer, it's just a, a pretty big mismatch. He was ranked 50 as a singles player in this tournament. Uh, Federer handled him 2-3-2. At this point in his career, he was either the oldest or second oldest player on the tour. Um, in 1997, he was ranked four in the world. Most recently, he was Andy Murray's coach. Is that still the case? Uh, he's not on the team uh, in the camp anymore. I don't know if there's a less formal thing going on, but yeah, he's not a coach coach anymore. Mikhail Yuzhny, third round, ranked 25 in this tournament. Federer handled him 3-3-6. Novak. Here we go. Novak Djokovic. Ranked 15 now. 
Uh, he's coming up, Brian. This is sort of uh, not a not a coming out party because Roger did handle him two five three, and he wins the first set on Novak's serve, which is sort of a. I think we've talked about this, or at least I've told you that from a lay fan's perspective, when you win on your opponent's serve, that's sort of a it's a one-upsmanship of epic proportions as far as tennis is concerned. The thing that was interesting about this match, and I'm curious what your thoughts are as far as Novak's emergence here. Second set, Novak's down 3-0, but he's fired up. He's different. He actually starts to go for broke a little bit more, something that we're going to see in his game going forward, especially early against early Roger, his early matches against Roger. He gets it to 5-5, but Roger takes the set on a Novak error, and a match point for Roger was an ace down the line, which is sort of one of Roger's ultimate triumphs is when he's able to do that. Talk about Novak in this tournament in particular, and whether or not you think this was a seed of any kind that got planted that he was going to be a force to be reckoned with for Roger going forward and for the rest of the ATP. I definitely think that because... 2006, they played a, I would say, spirited match in Monte Carlo. That was the first time they had played. Uh, Djokovic wins a set. 2006 was, you know, Djokovic wins his first title. He had a really good year. So he had kind of sent a message that, okay, we talked about those first-time title winners uh, in 2006. Djokovic and Murray were the two uh, most notable ones, obviously. So 2007, he begins the year, you know, Federer here, does not play an Australian summer warm-up tournament before the Australian Open. He goes right into it. Djokovic plays Adelaide and wins Adelaide. So that's already a, he's got momentum coming into this tournament. And you're thinking, okay, this kid, he's going to be 20 years old in a couple months. He's still 19. He can play a little bit. We're starting to see that. And then something else you see with Djokovic here, because you see it to this day, you saw it before. He's not scared of Roger. And you see it now where you'll hear people especially when it's a younger guy, you'll hear them talk about playing Federer before they play Federer. And you could tell they're beaten before they step on the court. Like it's yes. like they're, they're going to, it's like they're going to church and they're going to play against their idol. And they're not looking at it as I'm going to go compete against this guy. They're like, I'm going to play tennis against Roger Federer because in many cases, these guys, especially now the younger ones grew up watching Federer. Djokovic, of course, closer in age, but from the beginning, he's relatively fearless against Federer. He's got that, just that, you know, a little bit more of a bravado about himself. Um, not nonchalance, not nonchalance. No, it's not a nonchalance. It's like an, it's like an edginess. Yeah. Um, which didn't always has not always sat well with Roger. Like he's got that, like he knows that he can play with him. And as time has shown, we certainly see that he could play with them. And this year is a big start for this because they played four times here in 2007. We're going to talk about those matches because they're all very important. The one Djokovic win was big. That's later in the summer. And the fourth, I think it was the fourth one, spoiler alert, the 07 U.S. Open final, that's a one-off because that is the only time Roger has ever beaten Novak in a major final. Only time it's ever happened. And that says a lot. We're going to get into that down the road. But here in January of 2007, you can see the seeds of the next almost decade and a half starting to be sown a little bit. The one thing that Novak does that I always saw is not condescending, but definitely edgy is when Roger hits a point, and he does this for a lot of players, but you mostly home in on the Roger Federer stuff because they're the consequential matches. 
but he'll clap his racket. He'll hit his, he'll hit this part of his hand on the racket to sort of acknowledge the point. But there's a, there's a degree of like brusqueness to it that is just sort of off-putting. And I'm a fan watching through my tube. It's, you know, there's, it's not sincere. It's not genuine. And he did it twice in this match. And when I saw that, I could just see Roger kind of doing his little look where he like looks up from the ground to kind of that one little glance. And I watched a condensed version of the match. So I don't know if the point right after that resulted in a Roger Federer ace or some sort of, I'll get you back. But do you agree with that? The hand clapping on the racket, there's something to it. So again, I think it goes to what I was just talking about because yeah, you, you see that players will do that. It's just kind of that, that too good. Like, Oh, you got me there. It's different. But I think if, it's different with but, Novak, but I think it's, you give him credit for this because if he's 19 years old, Federer's thinking like, like, who the hell is this kid telling me like, that's too good. Like, of course it's too good. I'm Roger Federer. <laughs> but by Djokovic saying that, it's like he's telling Federer, like, yeah, you had to come up with that to beat me. Like, well done. Like, I think it get, like it's a way of putting himself like, yeah, it took that to beat me. Like, I'm going to applaud that because that's how you beat me. You came up with that great shot. That's how you won the point. Now do it again. I, I You've got to, I think, respect that about him. As ride or die team Federer, Brian, I admit that is the one thing that I relinquish to Novak. And it is, is the most... You know, you you mentioned that statistic that the only final he's he's only beaten him one time in a final, and it is that bravado that that I just and me like so many others can't get over. But it is his strength, and it is why he is the player that he is. Because you got to st- like at this point, it's fair to say that Roger is Goliath, and and Novak stood up to him like David. He had a slingshot, and I think his slingshot was this confidence, and it has served him legendarily well. He stood tall. Stood tall. There you go. Uh, next round, we got Tommy Robredo, who was ranked six in this tournament. Federer handled him three, six, five. And he's one in 11 all time against Roger. So far, actually, he's still active. Um, and 2006 was also one of his best years. He achieved the rank of five then. He is a bit of a knack, Brian, for coming back down two sets to win matches, made it to the quarters of the French five times and managed to get deep in all the rest, but never win. Any thoughts or context on Tommy Robredo? Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a professional. Like, it's one of those consummate professional guys. I saw a match a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was 2014 at the US Open. It was a match I called, and it was the emergence of Nick Kyrgios. Like, he had made his big arrival at Wimbledon. So Kyrgios is playing. Had he beaten the doll yet in that Wimbledon? Yeah, it, it was. So it was two months later. So Kyrgios is playing a night match on Ash against Robredo, and it's like you know Jedi against like it's like Obi Wan against Luke essentially. And so Kyrgios is out there just bombing 140 mile an hour serves. He's basically it looks like you're watching like All Star Saturday in the NBA. Like it's like he's showing off, but Robredo does doesn't say a word, and it's like watching somebody. I'm really emptying the bag with these metaphors. It's like watching him like reel in a fish. Like, because as the longer they're out on court, the more Kyrgios starts to get frustrated. You know, the best of five formats, just not what he's used to. And Robredo is just reeling him in. And by the time, didn't even go five. I think it was four sets. Robredo's in total control of the match. And just like, it's like the OG. It's like the guy who's playing basketball at the park and like can't jump, but he always like is in the right spot. And he has this like, like he'll know how to like put his elbow like directly into your ribs. That's like what watching Robredo that night was like, like where he's just not going to 
let the razzle-dazzle of Kyrgios get to him. The other big Roberto thing, uh, he played a role in blocking what could have been the only uh, Federer-Nadal meeting at the U.S. Open because the only time Roberto beat him was at the U.S. Open in 2013. First time he lost, Roger lost in the fourth round in, I think, 10 years. You go back to 2003 when he had lost before that, and that was just a, a strange, bizarre match. I think it was moved out to Armstrong. There was a lot of rain. This is before the roof. So it's a place where Federer was not comfortable. He's playing somebody he should own, loses. Um, and I think that those stories, I guess, tell you who Tommy Robredo is. Like a very talented guy, obviously, sure. but he's one of those consummate professionals. You think... I've lost to Federer all these times. I'm just going to pack it in. But no, he finds a way to go out and beat him. So that one win against him prevented a Nadal-Federer U.S. Open matchup, huh? Yeah, I don't know if it wow. was set. Like, I don't know if Nadal had already won. But like, it was a was foregone set. conclusion. Yes. So the Federer match ended as Nadal took the court. Um, and Nadal did win that match uh, did that he, he played. Uh, Phil Kohlschreiber. Oh my God. And that would have been a final with the two of them? No, it would have been a quarterfinal. Quarterfinal still. Take it. Yeah, this went back. So this actually turned into a great, uh, we're doing our 2013 US Open review here. Great Djokovic Nadal final. Uh, the third time they met in the final there in four years. They had a 50 shot rally. Like it was just really good, high quality stuff. A lot of fun. You mentioned Kyrgios, and I always got him kind of in the back of my mind because he is a fascinating human and a player prediction does he win a grand slam or has that ship sailed uh ship hasn't sailed um it's just the question of him you know the the focus and the intensity like day in day out for two weeks i'll say no like i i could very i certainly could very easily be proven wrong like i yeah. wouldn't be surprised if i'm wrong he has the talent no question 100 percent. um but if you were to ask me right now if i had to guess i would say no okay taking the under like i love watching him i love listening like he's i love how open he is about he's a fascinating person like i said yeah like listening to him just talk about like the state of tennis like about other people he gives like real he's a real person he mm. gives like honest answers it's not just like corporate speak about like oh everybody's great like he will tell you who he doesn't like he'll tell you everything about everything and i think you you got to respect him for that great impressors and speaking of pressers the men's semifinal at the 2007 Australian Open featured none other than Roger Federer and his old pal, Andy Roddick, who was ranked seven, slipping a little bit. I want to jump in, though. Slipping a little bit, but we mentioned briefly at the beginning of the show how they played at the uh, year-end finals in 2006. Roddick had uh, at least one match point on Federer in that round robin match did not uh, convert. It was in a, a tie break and, and Roger came back to win the match. Um, so we know like Roddick is a top 10 player. He can play with Federer, but what Federer did that night is just beyond words. Like it's one of the great performances we've ever seen. Well, look, we're not talking about an early round or a round robin match. We're talking about a semifinal of a grand slam. So Andy Roddick can play, he can ball out and he pretty much handled everybody in his way getting to this match. But this match, in all honesty, I was going to completely gloss over it until you reached out to me last night. Then I went back and I watched it. And cause when you look at it on paper, on a, on a two dimensional piece of paper or a screen, it's four Oh two 
Federer wins in 83 minutes, okay? Two things go through your mind. One, maybe Andy Roddick forgot to tie his shoe that day and he turned his ankle, okay? The second thing, which is less clear until you watch the tape, this was uh, mana from heaven, if you will, to overquote this favorite show of ours. Roger Federer was not Roger Federer, even by his own admission at the end of the match when they were talking to him on the sidelines. He even said in a way that I know you are sort of mixed about his, his, his post-game commentary was like, I was so amazing. It was amazing. Like he right. does, he doesn't know what to say about the degree of amazingness, but to your point, and then I'm going to let you talk about this. It's considered to be one of Roger's best games ever followed by an equally all-time great presser afterward. Set the stage, and then I'll play the tape on the presser. So we go into this match. Remember, these two had met at the U.S. Open final the year before. Roddick, okay, hung with Federer, but Roger's too good. Had the match point on him at the year-end finals, couldn't win the match. But Roddick here, he's still working with Jimmy Connors. He was feeling good about his tennis. And you're thinking, okay, Roddick hasn't beaten Federer in a while, but... Let's see what he can do. First set, it's four all, but then Federer somehow comes up with this brilliant break and it was like everything, it was like a thunder, a lightning bolt struck because from that point on, four all in the first set, Roger breaks Roddick there to go up 5-4. At one point, he won 11 games in a row. He won 24 of 27 points. But what makes this just shocking, again, as you said it, Vic, this is a major semifinal against the world number seven. This is not first round against somebody who just came through qualifying. He's one of the best players in the world, and Federer absolutely schooled him. This is one of the all-time great performances. You, you talked about the Federer comments afterwards. I love – I'm not of mixed opinions about him. I love them. I just think it's funny how he says these ridiculous things and nobody ever – like other athletes would probably get criticized for it, but Federer will talk about how great he is and how great he played and – how he can't believe how great he played and everybody just <laughs> eats it up. It's hilarious to me. And with good reason, he was saying that after this, but to tee up what we were just talking about. So after the match, Roddick goes into the press conference, um, not feeling well, obviously 80 plus minutes. He wins two games after the four all start to the match. And he delivers Roddick was, I would say well known for his press conferences, but this is is really one of the all timers. What was it like for you? Just, what? What was it like for you just being there at the end of that? It was frustrating. You know, it was miserable. It sucked. It was terrible. Um, besides that, it was fine. <laughs> what did Jimmy decide to use right after the gun? He gave me a beer. And just take us from four all on, because up to four four, you're in the match, and then you got broken. I get broken, and then I got broken three more times, and I got broken two more times in the third set, and then it was over about 26 minutes later. <laughs> Is that about what you saw too? Or? Yeah, no, I saw that. You're right, Hasso Gonzalez's chances against you. Slim. <laughs> you said this week that you thought the gap between you and Roger was closing, or at least wasn't getting any wider. Yeah, not tonight. But the next time you feel that, will you keep it to yourself? No. Have I ever not answered a question honestly? That's honestly the way I felt. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna keep that to myself. You ask me a question, I'm gonna give you an honest answer. What do you want me to say? You know, I'm gonna come in here and kick my own. 
daily basis, it's not going to happen. I'm going to get up. I'm going to try to keep fighting. I'm going to try to keep working. And that's what I do on a daily basis. I wake up and, you know, work my butt off on a daily basis. And I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to try to take this like a man as much as I can. He outplayed me. He played a lot better than I did tonight. He deserves all the praise that he gets. And not only for, for how he plays, but how he handles himself. Um, you know, get up tomorrow and look forward. And what did Jimmy say? Because, you know, US Open final experience, you're playing real tough, you got on a roll too. But did you guys talk about that before the match? If Roger gets on a roll, try to do XYZ, try to slow it down, uh, something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of strategy talk. It's not so much like if you're down 6-4-6-0-2-0, you know. We didn't really talk about that. Oops. Performance here is better than on court. My performance here is better than on court. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> if there were rankings for press conferences, I wouldn't have to worry about dropping out of the top five, I hope. After a night like this, do you sleep well? Do I sleep well? Yeah. It depends on how much I drink tonight. <laughs> how much would you have paid uh, in order not to come to this press conference tonight? It's <laughs> about the best question that's been asked. Um, uh, well, well, I don't. Well, I mean, that I can't really say an amount because I would have gotten fined what twenty grand. So obviously, it would have to be less than that, right? If we're thinking, if we're thinking logically, um, I don't. It really wouldn't be about the money. It'd be about running away and not facing it. You know, I would pay a lot of money if everyone would just make up stuff that I said and pretend like I was actually here. That'd be fun. But my dad didn't raise me to run away from it, so here I am. So I love how Roddick starts with the understatement of the century, and he just says, like, well, he played well. And the question I think he got was, have you ever seen somebody play like that? Because everybody knows what they just saw. So he starts it with this massive understatement, but then he, he works his way into it with the well, there's no doubt he was coming up with some shots tonight, which we saw on display from that four-all game on uh, in the opening set. Good use of the thesaurus, too, and they asked how it was to be there at the end, and he said it was frustrating, it was miserable, it sucked, it was terrible. <laughs> and we talked a lot, obviously, about, especially in the 2006 U.S. Open review, Jimmy Connors, and the question was, what, what did Jimmy say to you? And he said, he gave me a beer. And I know in a, in a few minutes he gets a question about is it going to be hard to sleep tonight? And his answer was, depends on how much I drink. Yeah. But the the best question, I, I think the one that lives on forever, it was asked by the great American writer, Matt Cronin, who I've had the pleasure of working with for a long time. He basically said, you know, at four all, what happened? Um, yeah, yeah. That was my favorite. I was hoping you weren't going to say the last question because the last question was kind of like, whatever. He said, it's the one question that I wished, it's the best question that he thought. How much did you not want to come to this press conference. But your question I thought was my favorite one as well. How did that go? Yeah. So Matt Cronin just basically says what happened at four all. So I know Matt's a really good guy. I know Matt a lot and he's got a very biting kind of style. And Roddick goes right back at Roddick obviously knows him. And he goes, is that about what you saw too? And Matt's like, well, yeah, no, I know what I saw. I was, yes, I saw it. Everybody saw it. So he's asking for more about it. Good, good job by Matt. Um, it was just awesome. I mean, and the question about 
we get a little bit after this because I think, you know, Roddick had said something, not like he's saying like, I'm coming for number one, but something like I'm feeling good about my game. And I think his answer that he gave is, is great. As, as much as we talk about how funny this press conference was, the answer is great in terms of what's going through the minds of these guys when they are going up against this like unstoppable force that was Federer at this point. And Roddick said, no, I don't regret saying that. And I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, I'm not going to like sit around feeling sorry for myself and just give up. It's like, I'm going to go back to work and just keep, you know, working my butt off. And he, he certainly did that for about five more years after this, he got to another major final. We saw Roddick for a while after this, but that's the, that's the discipline as they say in one of my favorite movies, just to be able to, do it day in, day out. Okay, you lose, but you come back the next day and you do it again. So it's as much as we laugh about this press conference, I also think it's it's pretty instructive. Oh, for sure. You have to have that mentality. Otherwise, what are you doing? What are you getting out of bed for? You know? Right. You gotta believe. You gotta you gotta believe you can at least go the distance. That's the whole sort of message of sports, right? Just play the best you can, put it all on the floor, and you can walk away with your head held high, win or lose. Yes. And so Roddick also gives us a nice um, preview of the final in this press conference. Oh yes. Um, so the semi, the other semifinal is, is going to follow the first one. And it was uh, Fernando Gonzalez against Tommy Haas. The question is, what do you rate the chances of either Fernando Gonzalez or Tommy Haas? I don't even think the person asking the question had finished saying the names when Roddick just said slim, slim. Yep. Love it. Okay. Brian, was this Rogers greatest game? Um, I think because of the stage it was on, like, yeah, you could say, like, he he probably played a better match, you know, somewhere in, in like, the third round in, in Toronto one year that we're not. And, okay, that's a, a Masters event, so it's a big deal. But in terms of a, of a major semifinal um, against the top 10 player, this isn't some guy who, you know, snuck through the draw and now the clock strikes midnight on Cinderella. This is, a four, this is the guy who was number one before Roger Federer. It's Andy Roddick. He's still a top 10 player. He's still a very good player. And for Federer to just find this other level uh, that nobody else can even dream of getting to. And to do it in a major semifinal, really at the flip of a switch, is what's so remarkable. And to do it in Rod Laver Arena with Rod Laver in attendance, he's one of Roger's heroes. I think this one has a special reverence in terms of the all-time Federer wins list. Just to put a button on it, and I, I'm going to agree with you, just based on the cursory like research that I did, I looked at all the Grand Slams, I sorted them by dominance ratio, and then I also sorted them by length of the match. So how fast did Roger dispatch them? And then I controlled out all of the sort of early rounds, right? So like a round of 128, he had a dominance ratio of uh, you know 2.61, which as we know, anything over one is considered incredible. So this was 2.61, but it was a round of 128 against Lucas Lacco, right? Uh, Lachko. Lachko, thank you. His most dominant match ever, though, in a Grand Slam second week actually happened against Juan Martin Del Potro at the Australian Open, quarterfinal, 3-0-0, and he had a dominance ratio of 3.48. When you look at this Roddick match, he had a dominance ratio of 2.18. And he completed this match in just over an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 23 minutes. So given the stakes, though, given the fact that it was a semifinal, given the fact that he played against one of his old foes, and given the fact that he went on to win the tournament, 
I absolutely agree. And there have been some other ones. He's had a dominance ratio in the threes at Wimbledon again, but it was a it was a one twenty eight. It was an early round, non consequential. So the only other match that I would put against this one, based on the stakes, is that Del Potro match. But even with that match, um, and I just went to look at some of the the notes of it. That's Del Potro, who who was in, in very good form. He'd won a, a handful of titles the previous summer. That's where he kind of announced himself. He had won an Australian summer title already. So yeah, he's on the ascendancy, but he's not an established guy like Roddick is. And Del Potro, of course, beats Roger later that year in the U.S. Important Open point. final. Um, so I, that's for me at least why I, I still give the the edge to and to the the Roddick match in terms of the most impressive major high stakes performance. And I mean, we can argue this though, because then we could talk like, okay, well, he comes back after, you know, a couple of down years and he's out winning majors against Nadal in the final at age, what would he, 35, 36. So like, that's impressive in its own way, but it's not dominant. Like it's, I mean, at a certain point it becomes semantics, but this one in terms of those just it's like Mike Tyson, Michael Spinks. Like that, that's probably the best analogy you can think of where it's like Michael Spinks is a great boxer and he was like, Roddick didn't look terrified, but like Spinks looked terrified. And like Mike Tyson looked like he could have like murdered him in the ring. Um, like they were playing different sports. Like that's at, a, at some level what this was like for Federer against Roddick. Midway through the second set, Roddick did want to get out of that arena and you could yeah. see it in his body language for sure. Okay, Gonzalez, real quick before we get through the final. Uh, his path beat a player named Korolev, who was ranked 87, Anna Kornikova's cousin, who is known for most things unrelated to tennis, Brian, but she was a semifinalist at Wimbledon and got to eight in the world. I got to admit, I did not know that. That's, that's a tennis accomplishment. That is, I, I think we need a reexamination of the Anna Kornikova legacy. Thank because you. Because she... You know, she gets like unfairly criticized as this player who never won a singles title um, and was, you know, just marketed because of how beautiful she is. But she was a top 10 player in the world. Like she's not some person who had a great two weeks and then we never heard from her again. She was a very good player. Okay, she's not a major champion. But and then also in terms of the like just the breakthrough level, she was almost in some way Sharapova before Sharapova. She's won a couple of doubles uh, majors, I think, with Martina Hingis. Just that breakthrough especially for Russian players. This is yeah. shortly after fall of the Soviet Union. So they're able to, you know, play on more of the, the level playing field, like with everybody else. Yeah. Um, I think she was a big, important person there. And we look at around this time, early 2000s, it was really the, the golden era of Russians, Russian, certainly women's tennis. It's, it's fallen off a bit since then. Uh, she was a big trailblazer and part of that movement. For sure. That's my Anna Kornikova soapbox. And I thought it was a perfect way to bring her into this. Um, second round, uh, Gonzalez faces Del Potro, who we've just spoken about. He was ranked 73 in this tournament. He retired, actually, from this match. Um, but it's important to mention him because, again, despite that dominance ratio of 3.48 against Roger uh, in a couple of years, he does come back later in 2009 to beat him at the Australian Open or at the U.S. Open in a devastating match for any Roger Federer fan. But I did become a lifetime Del Potro fan uh, thereafter. One of the best tennis performances I think I've ever seen. You actually, you know what? If you talk about it from a from a domination standpoint, again, we were talking about Federer versus Roddick in that match. 
witnessing what Del Potro did to Roger in the U.S. Open was reminiscent, now if I may, to what I saw Federer do to Roddick. Wasn't quite as blown off the court, but there were shots that Del Potro hit in that tournament, in that match, which we will talk about even though Roger lost, that made me go, wow. Like, a notch above whatever too good is. Like, more like, holy shit. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that, it's that different kind of power. And I can absolutely agree with you because it's something you mentioned a little bit earlier. Another example of that, um, we talk about Marin Cilic. Yeah. Cilic, the year he won the US Open, and you'd said he beat Federer in the semifinal. I remember calling that match. And there were, I mean, Cilic blew him off the court. Like it was, like he absolutely just thumped him, um, just too much power. And that's what those, those Cilic, those Del Potro, those kinds of guys, that's what they have. Problem is, the whole puzzle, doing it all together against yes. the, the Federer, Djokovic, the dolls of the world. Finishing up the path to the final for Gonzalez, he went through Hewitt, who's 19, ranked 19, Blake, a 5, won that 5-4-6. Nadal, who was ranked 2, 2-4-3. Two, Haas, who you mentioned already, ranked 9, one three. One key takeaway, Brian Gonzalez was a beast this tournament and went through quite a gauntlet uh, of some of Roger's opponents, perennial opponents, I should say, just to get to play him in the final. A worthy journey for this guy. What do you say? What do you think? Or what do you make of that path that he had to take to get there? Yeah, that is that's like a heavyweight weight class. I mean, to pick off those guys, you've got Hewitt on Australian soil. It's always a tough out. Haas played a big game, big style of tennis. This is Nadal coming into his ascendancy, get past a, a very promising Del Potro. We talked about how he had um, had some form. He was beginning to make a name for himself. This is huge for Gonzalez. It's one of those like career-defining weeks. And the only problem is clock struck midnight before he could win a major title because waiting for him in the final is a pretty well-rested after his 80-minute semifinal Roger Federer. The final was 6-4-4. Of course, he got it to a, the first set to a tie break, which is pretty impressive. Um, at four, And I have one clip here I'm going to show you. At 4-4 in the first set, Gonzo gets break point and wins to serve for the first set. He wins to serve for the first set, which is, you know, which is unconscionable for someone playing Roger at this point in a final. He gets a set point, but Roger manages it. I don't have a hard statistic on that, but usually when Roger's under duress, he's not the best. He's usually his best when he's playing from ahead uh, and then some. But Roger gets a break point, and then Gonzo does that flip shot we saw him do earlier against Roger at Wimbledon. From the other side of the court this time, though. But Roger wins with a bone crusher. And the broadcast, I remember, called it sinister. Roger's shot. Here's Roger uh, Brian at 5-5. And never looking back. He's so good. Yeah, that's he is so good. Sinister, yeah. maddening, whatever word you want to 
put on it there. Federer just playing ultimate defense from the baseline. He's coming up with every shot. Then he comes into net. Gonzalez has some great gets. And you see Gonzalez, too, because you think of him as this boomer just thumping the ball, but he's able to mix in a couple of slices. He throws up a lob, but Federer has an answer for every single shot that Gonzalez plays. With that lob, Roger's got it covered at net. Gonzalez has to track it down. Roger cuts it off on the pass attempt. It's just Gonzalez is playing winning tennis against most of the tour. Federer is just playing this sublime, or as he put it, sinister level. Actually, Vic, um, as we move on in Federer's story here, we, I think we have to pay tri- or discuss this at least um, because they're now becoming a thing. What do we think of Federer's outfit in uh, this 2007 Australian Open? I am a proponent, and we just saw it. I like his color palette. I'm all about color palette. I think what Gonzalez is wearing is very distracting, and it's yes. very it's very barbaric. Barbaric, wow. I, lo- I love Gonzalez, as you know. Like, he's very fun, fascinating player to watch. But, you know, it's kind of like a page out of, he's kind of got the Mike Tyson thing going. And there's something even about his, his uh, headpiece that is tied a little more battle sort of ready. Federer's is a little bit more f- fashion sense, whereas Gonzalez's headpiece, I'll, I'll play the clip again, just so you can see what I'm talking about here. Yeah, Gonzalez, we have to paint the word picture, of course. Gonzalez is wearing this royal blue top, but it's got like a white X pattern across the back. And that's what I think might, I would agree with you. Barbaric's a, a strong uh, maybe term, but it's this white, almost like the Star Trek insignia, like design on the back. Yes. Don't love it. But I see what you mean with the headbands. Yeah, Federer looks like he's on the beach with his headband. Yes. Gonzalez, Gonzalez looks like he's looks ready like Rambo. for war. He looks yeah, like Rambo. Rambo. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for. I was waiting for it. It was on the tip of my tongue. Gonzalez is all Rambo, and Federer is, to quote Agassi, he could be tap dancing with an ascot. And we should point out, as we criticize Gonzalez's outfit, I'm fairly certain he had absolutely no say in picking what he was wearing. For sure. It's totally Adidas, just handing him clothes and saying, here, wear this. Roger's wearing a, let's call it Robin's Egg Blue top but it's got some white horizontal striping around the chest and then like a really thick wide dark navy blue stripe uh the only points i will deduct from his outfit the shorts are still a little too baggy that's of the time uh and also the collar of the shirt it's a zipper not a button i don't Mm -mm. really like the Mm -mm. zipper no but no i I give it a solid it's it's a a good look it's not his best but it's not his best look uh i will say though and we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves his Uniqlo look, as much as I'm a Nike file, uh, his Uniqlo looks have been solid too. He's been he's aging with dignity and grace, as I fully expected him to. That's that's exactly what it is. He's dressed like somebody his age. I mean, not that yeah. he's old, but in terms of tennis, he is, and he's dressed the part. He's not wearing these bright, flashy. Not that he ever was wearing some of the other Nike patterns. He had his own stuff, but yeah, he's dressed his age. It's very appropriate. All right, three three in the final set. Roger breaks Fernando Gonzalez after five deuces and long rallies, which made me ponder this question, and I wonder if you have a thought on it. Usually when, and I'm speaking, kind of relegating this conversation to Roger, but it could be opened up to all tennis players. When he's on the verge or when he's in the hunt to break his opponent, I have no data to back this up. I am just, this is just an observation. I tend to notice that there are longer rallies that he kind of sets up the opponent to do one of two things, to either make a mistake 
or to find the perfect shot that he can crush them with. Is there a correlation, Brian, between breakpoint games and long rallies? Yes, because if you are trying to break your opponent and you're getting them into long, drawn-out points, that's bad for the server. Like, it's good for you. Yes. Because they want, like, yeah, they want, like, the quick, immediate offense. But if you're drawing them, making them play long points, that is not what they're trying to do. So if you're in the game, essentially, if you're in the point, you're in the game, better your chances are that you're going to get the break. So, yes. So he's... If a server doesn't get the point in the first couple of shots, you've completely neutralized the importance of being a server. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Championship point was a backhand winner on the line, which is classic, another classic Roger Federer final victory. The last one that we saw that we talked about last time was him doing an overhead smash to win it. This was a backhand winner down the line. Context, my friend, seventh consecutive Grand Slam final, 10 Grand Slams now. We're at the halfway mark of this journey, of our journey. Sights on the French, the only title eluding him, which we talked off mic at the top of the podcast. Uh, Only five players had ever done that, all four majors um, at that point. Perry, Budge, Laver, Emerson. And our boy Agassi, this we now know has been achieved by two other players since Roger. But the calendar Grand Slam, which is the holy grail of tennis, um, has not been achieved. Contextualize this. Tell me why the calendar Grand Slam is considered the holy grail of tennis and whether or not you think somebody is going to get it. And we should say it's no man has done it since. No man. Um, in Thank the calendar. you. Steffi Graf did it. Um, we were saying Serena Williams just missed out in 2015, lost in the U.S. Open semifinals. I mean, it's so hard because or it's so revered because it's so hard to do that these we we're seeing maybe the three greatest players of all time in action right now, and none of them have done it. Um, you've got to play. You've got to stay healthy. I mean, you've got to you think about all these different bad breaks that can pop up and bite you. You've got to avoid all of those. You've got to win on three different surfaces in a variety of different conditions. So you've got to be comfortable on all of those. And right now we're seeing it with these guys. There's been a lot of, you know, not cannibalization, but at the top of the game, these guys picking each other off. Um, We're talking about Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, but let's say in their, when all three were at their absolute prime, like let's say like the early part of the last decade, like 2010 to 2012, 13, Andy Murray was also playing some of his best tennis. So Murray's playing these guys, beating them in majors, beating them in major finals, major semifinals. So there's nothing given. I mean, when Del Potro was out there, he was doing the same. Um, it's really hard to do. That's, yeah, yeah. that's why it's so revered. But you think that Djokovic is going to be the guy if there is one? Um, well, there's not going to be one this year because there's no Wimbledon already. So even if they play the U.S. and French, I, this year be, would be different too because it's the calendar so strange. So when things do return to, you know, what, let's call them normal, um, yeah, I mean, if I had to pick somebody, it would be Djokovic, but I'm not saying that he's going to go do it. Like, but let's say next year things are, let's say January, 2021, Djokovic goes back to Australia and wins and the year looks, the calendar looks kind of normal. Um, he'd be turning, uh, he'd be turning 34 that year. So yeah, I, w- I would think depending on how he looks, um, that you, you could give him a chance. 
Um, it's really hard though. Put your capstone on 2007 Australian Open. Rogers, a 10-time Grand Slam champion. I think this is one of, and I feel like I'm saying this a lot, and it, I think it's making you just appreciate even more Roger now, 10, 15 years later, just how dominant this tournament was. He did not lose a set in the entire tournament. First time since the 1980 French Open. Bjorn Borg, another all-time great, somebody who did not win the career Grand Slam. Um, went through a tournament without losing a set. That's dominant. So was what we saw in the semifinals against Andy Roddick. Uh, he handled Fernando Gonzalez, 45 winners, 19 unforced errors in the final. I mean, this is another historic title for Federer. It's number 10. It's also now 36 consecutive match wins going back to mid-August of 2006. We're at half a year almost where this guy has not lost a tennis match. I mean, that is absurd. And we're seeing, though... The signs. You see Djokovic beginning his climb. We see, you know, Marin Cilic is not Djokovic, but these new names popping up. We talked about these French guys, the Malfis and Gasquets and Sangas of the world. And let me cut you off for, for a second real quick, and something just fell behind me. Yes, I saw that. Um, has either Nadal or Djokovic had a stretch of winning that long? You mentioned from August to December. Have either of those two had a winning streak that is that sizable? I don't think so, but let me double check it. No, I, I, sorry. I wasn't sure if Djokovic had done that. He did. He did. Yeah. I had a hunch, man. Yeah. And you know, it's a 36 match winning streak. He's going to get that into the forties. The guy has not lost since the middle of August, the year before. Um, that's, I mean, we've seen Djokovic do that in one of his part of one of his great years, 2011. Um, we talk about those great years though. And the conversation usually sounds something like Djokovic 2011, Djokovic 2015, McEnroe 84, Federer 06. And when you look at the guys that did that, those are the names that are in there over those times. Bjorn Borg also had 49 and 48 match winning streaks. It depends on the counting, but so 48 match winning streak. That's impressive. Guillermo Villas, Villas, we've talked about him before in terms of South American tennis. So these are the elite of the elite all time putting together these kinds of streaks. What's on tap? Uh, let me guess. It's 2007 Wimbledon, right? Yes, it is. This is the middle of three with Nadal at Wimbledon. And this is when Nadal comes awfully close and maybe sets the stage for the next year. But for all the talk we had about how great 2006 was for Roger, I mean, 2007 was a tremendous season. So there's going to be a lot to talk about going in to that Wimbledon. Something else we did not talk about in this show, and we should have, it's my fault. This is the dawning of a new age in tennis, uh, this Australian Open, electronic line calling, Hawkeye. Oh, where you yes. Challenge system. And Roger has a, a, I would almost call it a funny history with it. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, at Wimbledon. He, uh, he challenged two against uh, Roddick, I saw, and he was right both times. And the second time he was right, Roddick was in disbelief. He tried to get a high five from one of the people working on the court. I, I don't know what the exact title was, but there was someone, I guess it was a line judge or something. Line judge, yeah. And they did not high five him. And, they, and the commentator was like, he can't even get any love from a sideline judge. Uh, this was the first year, huh? 2007. Yeah, I mean, I've been tried and stuff, but in terms of the majors, it comes through here in 2007. And it becomes it becomes a thing in all the majors in 2007, or was... Well, it's still not at the French Open, because you, you don't do it on clay. Um, it's not accurate enough on clay. And you can, if you go on a clay court, you can actually see the mark. So you'll see the umpire get out of the chair and look at the mark. 
doesn't look that scientific, but they say that's actually more accurate than, than Hawkeye. And how often does that happen? That they have to actually go and inspect a lot because it, it, it's up to the like the player will request it. I got so it. So they'll say like, "Can you look at that?" And they'll come out, jog over, and take a look. And yeah, we could explain the etiquette of that. I was going to say, yeah, we'll talk about that next time. But this is also a sidebar that it merits asking now. Roger is notorious. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but he is known to point to spots on the court on all surfaces on on hard on grass. How keen is his eye? I mean, do you put in, do you like, is that a talent that's unique to Roger or do all pros, can they spot an actual mark on the court that was from the most recent time the ball was there? You know what I'm they, saying? Most of them, most of them can do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm always amazed at that too. Like, how do you know that that right. wasn't from 13 shots ago? It, like I've been on the court, like at, at Ash Stadium at the US Open, like after the final. And so it's two weeks of tennis is over by that point, And the court looks like, you know, there's marks everywhere. And yeah. you're thinking, how can you tell like what the freshest mark was, but they, they, they do. can do it. Um, a sense. I should also just uh, reiterate this. Was, it was actually used US Open 2006, but now we're here in 2007. So dawning of a new year where it's used. We should have talked about it last time, uh, but we'll, we'll talk about the Hawkeye because it does play a bit of a role. Good stuff as always, Brian. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Stay well and talk to you soon. Thanks, Vic. You too. 